This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. It's Thursday, October 5th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. You probably heard about this tragedy that happened the other day in New York City because when tragedies occur here, the world tends to know. A 32-year-old named Ryan Carson was stabbed to death on the streets of Bedford-Stuyvesant, 4 a.m. In the morning, and the pain was acute. Among those morning was Julia Salazar, who is a New York State Senator and chair of the Crime Victims, Crime and Corrections Committee. She's also a Democratic Socialist, as was, I believe, I think this is true, Ryan Carson. He's certainly, if not a, a, a registered member of any party, believed in causes like that. And Salazar was mourning his life, but then she also took to Twitter to say... Quote, New York has the largest police force in the United States. The U.S. has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world, a staggering figure in fact. And yet our city's violent crime rate far outpaces comparable international cities which have far less policing and jails. And she added, it's why I demand evidence-based policy changes instead. Along with countless New Yorkers who care deeply about public safety, I rely on public transit every single day. I do not own a car. I intimately, she claimed that she was a uh, crime victim, no reason to disbelieve her. I intimately understand the fear of waiting for a bus at night. More cops hasn't helped. Except more cops has helped and they do help. Excellent studies show that every police officer added to a force in the United States abates approximately 0.1 homicides. Hire 10 more cops, you'll get one fewer killing. And that same study showed this is felt even more acutely in black and brown communities. So it is simply not the case that adding cops hasn't helped. New York having the largest police force, even per capita, not just because New York's the largest city, keeps New York much safer. The murder rate of New York is far below, it used to be below the national average overall, far below the average for big cities. And in fact, she's comparing the U.S. to other international cities. Well, Tokyo has no guns, so that's going to greatly affect crime rates. But even if you look just that violent crimes, New York and London are very, very close. Not in terms of murder, but in terms of violent crimes. And the big reason the criminologists who look at this say is because New York just has so many more police. So it does work and it's terrible to use a tragedy to try to advance an evidence-free agenda. And I said so, and the morning that she's experiencing is genuine, but her policy prescriptions are horrible. Only I have to pivot not to Julia Salazar, who I think, you know, why even tweeted someone or make a point on Twitter, X, whatever you call it. It was only because she was a public official who actually in her remit are these exact issues. But others, many others, regular citizens, sometimes regular citizens with hundreds of thousands of followers, were taking to Twitter and saying essentially that Ryan Carson got what he deserved. Because even though Carson was primarily an environmental activist, he believed in a suite of causes that did include prison abolition, decarceration, prison reform, defunding the police. And therefore, the claim was either the strong claim, he got what he deserved, or the claim of, while very sad in his specific case, you reap what you sow. 
Only this is not true. This is not only cruel and misleading, this is not true at all. If Ryan Carson's politics were 180 degrees from what they are, if Ryan Carson was a welder from Massbeth who wore a MAGA hat, if he encountered the same individual he encountered, would have also been stabbed to death. He got in between the assailant and his girlfriend. Then he quite wisely tried to run away. He tripped over a bus stop and the guy just jumped on him and stabbed him. There was, other than just running away as soon as he saw the guy kicking over trash cans, there was nothing someone of his or any other ilk could have done. But let's take the other experiment. What about Ryan Carson's policies? What if Ryan Carson's policies were not in place? Well, I have news. Ryan Carson's preferred policies are not in place. Ryan Carson's policies, preferred policies, were along the lines of, let us greatly decelerate the number of people that we send in jail. Let us arrest fewer and fewer people. But that is not the case in New York. That is not the case in Eric Adams, New York. There might be people clamoring for reform, but they haven't been heard. And we don't know. We don't have a treatise on exactly what Ryan Carson was saying. But it is quite unlikely that he would want a very angry 18-year-old with mental health conditions not to have some sort of government intervention to actually help the guy. So again, to reiterate, you can change the fact of Ryan Carson's politics 180 degrees. It wouldn't make such a person alive today. You could change the facts of Ryan Carson's politics 180 degrees. It wouldn't change the actual state of policing in New York. They arrested his assailant. He apparently had mental health issues, but it was not a case where he benefited from any reformist policies. He was not free on cashless bail. No defund the police effort, which never happened in New York, was in effect that caused him to be free when otherwise he would be locked up. All it is is a disgusting claim to advance the peoples who are making its own political agenda and to flag their cruelty for the world. I totally disagree, as you know, with the initiatives that Ryan Carson supported. But his ideas, which should not become law, also in no way led to his death. Horrible people saying so hurt their cause and present themselves as cruel and lacking in all perspective and decency. They're basically telling us you need not listen to us on matters of serious importance. And the sad thing is, they're often the loudest voices and the stupidest voices rebutting other bad ideas, such as more cops have no impact on crime rates. On the show today, all right, that was about violence. Now let us turn to peace, the Peace Corps, and the Peace Corps' exclusion of people with mental health issues. But first, if you're a regular listener to The Gist, you've probably picked up on a few of my influences. Ibsen, Jan Fus, Springsteen, early Leonard Skinnerd. But without a doubt, the 1980 slapstick comedy movie Airplane is on that list. Well, it's slapstick, it's wordplay, it's visual puns, it's groundbreaking. I still laugh every time I hear the Shirley joke or make it, which is often. Therefore, I could not pass up the opportunity to interview some of Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker. Two-thirds, in fact. They're out with a new book about the making of Airplane, David Zucker, 
and Jim Abrams join me next. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. If in 1980 I told you that Paramount Pictures was sitting on a movie that would change film forever, a true blockbuster, you'd surely say, why? What is it? And I'd say it's a thing of great power and size, in particular a movie book or other product that's a great commercial success. It's also a type of munition used in World War I. And you might say, I can't tell you how annoying you're being. And then I'd say, you can tell me I'm a podcaster. We're obviously talking about a fateful trans-American flight from Los Angeles to Chicago that was documented in the film, airplane, exclamation. Two of the writers and directors of the film are joining me now, Jim Abrams. Hello, Jim. Hi. And David Zucker. David, hello. Hi. And I just want you to know, I used the adverb, surely, but I did not make a joke about it and probably the first person ever to interview you and not do that. Is that correct? For you, yes. You spared us that. (laughs) Yeah, I was... I was shocked that you used it and didn't acknowledge it. Right. When people use it, maybe just at the dry cleaner or in regular conversation and don't know who they're talking to, do you have a little pang or a glimpse or is there always a moment where you're like, is he going to do the bit? I, you know, what surprises <laughs> me over the years is when I see interviews or where people say, Shirley, I I keep thinking, I wonder how many people in the audience who are listening to this interview are thinking, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> That's right. Uh, as I, I was telling Jim, we've had guests at our house for dinner. And then uh, one such occasion, uh, we uh, serving coffee and we said, how do you take it? And he said, black, like my women. <laughs> and I said, women, no, that's the wrong spot. It's supposed to be black like my men. Yeah. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you <laughs> might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Well, won't you sit down? Thank you. Cream? No, thank you. I take it black. Like my men. He had never seen airplane. He had heard it from someone in college. <laughs> that's right. Was he a nine-year-old boy? <laughs> no, no, this was a... No, no such luck. <laughs> That's an interesting question. You know, back in the day when Airplane was released, and I don't know whether they still do this, but they do test screenings for market research. And they divide the audience into four quadrants, men, boys, below and above 20 years old, and women, below and above 20 years old. And it always, always tested much higher with the men underneath 20 years old. And at the time, shortly after Airplane, I was actually married to a woman who was over 20 years old. Uh (laughs) And she used to say, you know, it's just not my kind of humor. But as it turned out, it was her kind of money. (laughs) (laughs) She took it. She didn't didn't make you not cash the residuals. That's good. There's so much in the book that talks about your formative years in University of Wisconsin and Kentucky Fried Theater and where certain jokes came from. Can you remember the Shirley joke specifically? Uh, I can't. I mean, and it's such a such an iconic line, and I cannot remember who came up with it. I know that specifically we were watching a movie called Crash Landing, 
Mm-hmm. It was one of these old, you know, black and white 1957 melo- airplane melodramas. And, and he said, Shirley, you can't be serious. And then one of us said, I am serious and don't call me Shirley. Right. And you don't know who it was. That's 99% of the stuff in the movie. So the, the Shirley joke just came up in the moment. You quipped it. It lives on in infamy. The I like my men like my coffee black joke. Similar, right? It yeah. was you were that was an actual joke. One of you made in the moment, made its way to the script, made its way to everyone's everyone's consciousness, except that one dinner guest that you had, David. Right. Well, it's yeah. twisted. And, and a lot of the things, you know, Jim would uh, type and, you know, we'd all throw out jokes and sometimes Jim would get bored and just type in something that he would never think would actually be in the movie. And Black Like My Men may have been one of those. I, I know that um, I, I like this. I remember how I used to sit on your face and wriggle was yes. his things that we typed in. All I have are memories. Mostly I remember the nights when we were together. I remember how you used to hold me. How I used to sit on your face and wriggle. And afterwards how we'd watch until the sun came. But Sigourney, you lost Sigourney Weaver for the star role because of that line, right? Right. We lost her. She didn't want to say that. But she miraculously, she she survived not getting the airplane role and went on to have a decent <laughs> career. So I'm an okay career. Yeah. 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 And, and as wonderful an actress as Sigourney Weaver is and continues to be, that we talk a lot in the book, I think, about how lucky we got. And one of the great breaks we got is that she turned us down and we wound up with Julie Hagerty, who's quite literally perfect in the yeah. movie and pulls that and all these other ridiculous lines off ideally. You'd better tell the captain we've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your stewardess speaking. We regret any inconvenience the sudden cabin movement might have caused. This is due to periodic air pockets we encountered. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Of all the straight-ahead 50s and 60s um, leading men icons who were in the movie, who had the hardest time understanding how to play the comedy as not comedy? I think uh, Lloyd Bridges probably had the the hardest time. Chief, we need a free landing flight check. Tell him I'm in the dispatch office and I want it here fast. It's your wife. I want the kids in bed by night. I want the dog fed, the yard watered, and the gate locked. And get a note to the milkman. No more cheese. You know, he took his acting very seriously, and as a trained actor... It's like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. Uh, you know, these these actors are used to having a character. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit drinking. And all we cared about was just say the lines and be that statue. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. That, that we're used to seeing. It's like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. Um, Stack, Bridges, Graves, and Nielsen. And... Uh, for a while, in the first couple of days, Lloyd was trying to actually make sense out of his lines. And uh, But fortunately, Stack was there, and he said, uh, Lloyd, look, 
that you know spears are going into the wall and watermelons are falling down they're not they're not listening to us they, they uh, <laughs> talking in, in the audio version of the book Bowbridges says you know that changed Lloyd's life because he was historically cast as a serious actor and after that he couldn't get jobs doing anything but comedy yeah, and of course, changed Leslie Nielsen's life. And by the way, Stone and Parker of South Parker in the book and David Letterman's in the book and so many people who wanted to, Jimmy Kimmel, who wanted to pay tribute essentially to the, how formative the movie was for them. Although Letterman has a more direct connection, which is that he auditioned. It didn't seem like his heart was in it though, however. <laughs> we would go to see him at the comedy store on Sunset and we loved him. We thought he was the funniest guy ever and uh, and, and so we asked him to audition and I don't, you know, I don't think his agent made him audition. I think he just, I think he, he, he wanted to be polite. So he came in and we thought he was funny. And then we, we forced him to screen test. Ted, you got a telegram this morning from headquarters. Headquarters. What is it? It's a big building where the officers meet. But that's not important right now. You're taking all the blame for what happened on that raid was a pretty courageous thing to do. Was it? Because of my mistake, six men didn't come back from that raid. Seven. Lieutenant Zip died this morning. <laughs> Dr. Chandler says you'll be out in a week. Isn't that wonderful? I wish I could say the same thing for George Zip. Didn't want to do it. He doesn't want to be an actor. Uncomfortable with it. Uh, because I think we say in the book that you know, acting is actually lying. And Letterman is a completely no BS guy. And he was so relieved not to get the part. And he says in the book, he enjoyed the movie so much and even more so because, you know, I wasn't in it, as he said. <laughs> what did he audition for the striker part, Bob Hayes's part? Yes, for striker. And what I learned, what I learned from the book is that Hayes had an insight that was a little bit opposite of Bridges, which is everyone had to just play it straight. But he was doing a little nod or a little wink to be the audience surrogate. And from what I understand in the book, you didn't pick up on that initially either, right? Uh, right, until we started to write the book. And he told us that, that, that he imagined his point of view in the movie was that he's a real guy trying to get his girlfriend back who has PTSD and all this nuttiness is going on around him. And if you watch his reactions in the movie, that's exactly what he does. It's not, we didn't direct him to make all those reactions. Right, and like, for instance, when, when they say, when Bob says to uh, Leslie and Julie, it's an entirely different kind of flying altogether. What flying experience have you had? Oh, I flew single engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying altogether. It's, it's an, an entirely, entirely different, different kind of flying. Bob's reaction is priceless. And you know, if you go back and watch the movie, it's really cool what he does. Yeah. Do you still enjoy watching the movie? Or are you like the Rolling Stones playing Satisfaction at this point? No, you know what? Here's the cool thing. The best, in when the movie opened and for uh, at the beginning, the most fun, most fun thing was to go and watch it with an audience. And we weren't actors or famous or anything. So we could just walk into any theater and sit down and watch and just kind of let the laughter wash over us. And it was great. But years go by and there's the occasional screening. But in the modern era, 
there, and I've confessed this to David and Jerry, and now I'll confess it publicly. Um, there on YouTube, there are channels where people watch and react to airplane for the first time. And it's really cool how the jokes have lasted all this long. I mean, nobody knows who Ethel Merman is. Yeah. And new and people, you know, the joke about the smoking ticket will come up and people say, You mean you you were allowed to smoke on airplanes? I mean it was stuff like that. But they still laugh at the smoking ticket. Yeah. So I was watching one of those videos, um, not even in preparation for this interview, just because sometimes I get into an airplane, Jag, and it was, I think, someone with a training in linguistics, a black guy who understands jive, if you will. And he was watching the jive scenes, and he had no idea if it was a comedy or anything, (laughs) and he loved and appreciated it. Can I get you something? Some more folk buttering into the bone, jacking me up, tight me. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Cutty say can't hang. Oh, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Now, fill me in on this. The two actors doing the scene, they contributed greatly to the, the jive that you had originally written? Al White and Norman Gibbs came to read, and they were sitting in the waiting room, waiting to, to be called, and they struck up a conversation, and they worked out this dialogue. So it's, they completely wrote it themselves. Right. And I think even the linguist who was a uh, hep to the jive was saying, ah, this is why it's not offensive. And I guess some people today would find it offensive, but is that the joke isn't you're making fun of this dialogue, this argo. The joke is how dorky white people are <laughs> in, or, you know, people who are in hep to the jive. <laughs> when the movie first opened, as I was saying, we go and watch with various audiences. One time we went to watch with a black audience. And I remember kind of being a little apprehensive, like, is this going to fly? And to be honest, they laughed at least as hard, maybe harder than the white audiences. They they were not only not offended, they got that we were making fun of stupid white people. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you one thing about the reception of the film, which it did very well. It was the most successful as judged against the cost of production, most successful movie of the year. And it really did change comedy. And I heard a story about how it was the uh, original makers of uh, the National Lampoon. They put their their, uh, intellectual capital into Caddyshack. And I think Caddyshack's a funny movie, but they came out, I think, the same summer. And Almost everyone involved in Caddyshack looked at Airplane and said, ah, that's what I should be doing. And there was a lot of regret among the Caddyshack people that they couldn't come up with something as brilliant and clever as Airplane. So I I know, I mean, you have all these famous comic voices saying how formative it was, but did you ever hear any mm, 
pangs of regret from the comedy community saying, I can't, I, I, I can't believe I didn't do that. Or I can't believe you guys lapped me on that one. Actually, the feedback we've gotten, and lots of it in the book, is that Airplane was sort of inspirational. Right. And it opened the door for other people to, you know, become tasteless. <laughs> Ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Do you want me to check the weather, Clarence? No, why don't you take care of it? Joey, do you ever hang around the gymnasium? We better get back now, Joey. No, Joey. Can... So you think it's t- a little bit of the tastelessness. What about joke density? Did you see a lot of that in the uh, years afterwards? Packing every... Mel Brooks did some of this, the Marx Brothers. I think I see it in The Simpsons. I think it was one of those movies that convinced us that audiences were ready to, you know, keep up and didn't have to have their hand held as much as maybe big Hollywood studios thought they did up to that point. I, I think you have hit on something. You know, there's certain things in the movie that, that we kind of remember as being our favorite shots because we don't point out the joke to the audience. And I think that was something that was different about Airplane. Is one, my favorite shot is there's turbulence and Leslie Nielsen's in the uh, passenger cabin tending to a patient. You know, it's this two feet with stir- in stirrups. He's giving a lady a pelvic and he's got a speculum and he goes, what the hell's going on up there? But he never, we never cut to anything and he never, we don't acknowledge, but the audience is allowed to see it for themselves. So speaking of the jokes that audiences are allowed to get, I might be reading into this too much, but when they shake the passenger and then Leslie Nielsen comes and shakes her some more, and then they slap the passenger and we pan to see the line of people holding weapons. I forget the exact order, but there are, I think, boxing gloves, lead pipe, old Italian woman with a gun, (laughs) and then after her, the baseball bat. It always made me laugh that... After the gun, there'd still be someone with a baseball bat ready. <laughs> you know, we wow. never thought about that. And, and the other thing that we learned, I think, in the course of writing this book, is that the lady, who, the actress who played the, the the hysterical woman, she suggested, "Well, you can slap me." We, I don't think that was in the script. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. Oh, down. Get a hold of yourself. Calm down. Now get back to your seat. I'll take care of this. Calm down. Calm down. Get a hold of yourself. Do you want another phone? And so, and led to one another one of my favorite jokes in the movie when Leslie slaps her, and then as he's leaving, he gives her another slap. Like, why? Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. It's like one for the road, yeah. <laughs> as wonderful as that joke is, in a million years, we could never do that today. No. Yeah, probably no, not. And, but and, and then I think, did we tell him to slap her again, or was that Leslie? No, I think, no, he just did that. <laughs> that was just Leslie being Leslie. It was so great. I mean, everybody contributed so much. You know, the actors really contributed a lot. A lot of ideas and the, the special effects guy who built the automatic pilot uh you know they, they and all these people are are you know their, their voices are heard in the book so the last thing i'll say and this isn't even a question i just want to say that as i was reading the book and remembering airplane it was reminding me of another experience i had and i was trying to say wait what and then it hit me 
to me, it was like watching that great Peter Jackson Beatles documentary about the making of Get Back. In that, like, I think of that album as almost a religious text. <laughs> so to be there and see Paul McCartney riffing on what would become Get Back was more than just how art was created. And I really did have a similar feeling. And it's very much a difference in terms of highbrow, lowbrow, uh, exalted, celebrated, and you know, a little shameful. But I really did have a similar feeling reading your book and talking to you guys. So thank you for everything. That's very, very kind. David Zucker and Jim Abrams, or two-thirds of Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, Zaz. They are the writers and director of a movie called Airplane. Their book is Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. And now the spiel. The Peace Corps, we're told, is the toughest job you'll ever love. Well, we weren't just told it. It was tagged with an earworm, and it really worked. Remember that? Peace Corps, the toughest job you'll ever love. I bet the inherent exoticism of the African drum rhythm would not fly today, but it did sear the slogan into my memory, and maybe yours too. But now there's a new lawsuit that positions the Peace Corps as sometimes less than lovable. At issue is the fact that the Peace Corps routinely rejects applicants for mental health reasons. And that they do so, according to the suit, capriciously and not in accordance with the best practices and thinking of modern medicine. To quote the suit, the Peace Corps fails to conduct individualized assessments based on reasonable judgment that relies on current medical knowledge and on the best available objective evidence, and it fails to consider reasonable accommodations for invitees with disabilities when conducting its medical clearance process. The Peace Corps routinely denies invitees with disabilities an equal opportunity to participate in and benefit from its volunteer program on account of their disabilities, perceived disabilities, or recognized disabilities. Now, we got to say, as a federal program, it cannot deny the American citizens applying and in some cases already securing acceptance their rightful places in the program. I am no expert, but that is my understanding of the law, and this lawsuit is aimed directly at the law. That was one of my conclusions. I also know, and this is based on reporting in the New York Times, that even if you were to say, well, the military, the police corps, the State Department, maybe they have different laws that might apply to them out of necessity, out of carve-outs, out of the fact that they're mostly working overseas. But, you know, the State Department was sued over the requirement that employees be able to work overseas without dependence on medical care. And after a number of years, that requirement was scrapped. So, thought one, this lawsuit might just go somewhere. Thought two is not about the chance of victory, but it's to really examine the claims. To consider someone on account of their disabilities, perceived disabilities, or record of disabilities. Big difference between a couple of those phrases. Their disabilities, actual disabilities, are actual, and perceived disabilities might not be. 
The discrimination, which is, of course, a dirty word, but what every hiring company engages in, discrimination based on an inaccurate perception needs to be in an entirely different category than on an accurate perception. The best case for the plaintiffs are made by the plaintiffs where their conditions aren't actual disabilities. I mean, they might be mental or medical conditions, but it doesn't disable them from doing their job. And as I read through the suit, it is not the case that that is asserted with all of the applicants. Plaintiff one seems to be in a category of, I mean, what do I know? But judging from the lawsuit, someone who will probably be able to perform their duties in a community that needs them. He was diagnosed with major depressive disorder when he was 12. There's no mention of that being an ongoing concern. They say that symptoms have not recurred since high school. But another, this is John Doe B, everyone's a John Doe, has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and he manages his diagnosis with therapy and medication. I'm glad he does, but it Of course, if we're going to be logical about it, puts him in a different position than John Doe A, who seems not to have had a major depressive episode for some time. The third John Doe identified had a major depressive disorder diagnosed in 2020, experienced severe depressive symptoms as recently as December 2021. That's really quite recently. The denial also stated that Uh, Plaintiff C's provider recommended that he continue with therapy, quote, to enhance coping skills. He asserted that he could continue his learned coping mechanisms while in Madagascar at no cost to the Peace Corps. There are a couple invitees to the Peace Corps. Invitee B had major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and panic disorder for which she's taking prescription medications. The New York Times found another rejected applicant who they quoted sympathetically, saying she was rejected for, quote, active symptoms of anxiety, increased heart rate, inability to sit still, and inability to say no. That does not seem ideal for most of the jobs, as I understand the jobs and the demands of the Peace Corps. I am convinced that these plaintiffs, if they were really given a rigorous reevaluation, probably should pass muster. The plaintiffs who are going to or were going to be assigned to the Philippines, Kyrgyzstan, and Madagascar. And we should also note that the Peace Corps isn't desperate for applicants. There are numerous qualified applicants for each slot. It is a selective competitive process. And a reason for exclusion that's imperfect might not mean that it's a poor reason for exclusion. If you got to pick amongst people who are probably all qualified, you just need to pick the best qualified. And here is really the most important point. I probably should have said it sooner, but it's really important to think about. Who's the Peace Corps for? It's not a question before the courts. This suit is being argued based on American law. It's more a moral question. Who is the Peace Corps for? Is it for the people of the Philippines, Kyrgyzstan, Madagascar? Or is it for young Americans looking to heal the world? Here's a quote from one of the rejected, the aforementioned applicant, Teresa, who had the inability to sit still and say no, quote, after she was rejected, quote, it's really humiliating to tell people that you got in and then were rejected because of your mental health. Mm -hmm. Another rejectee quoted by the Times said, it was really heartbreaking to be dismissed like that. It took a lot of processing to get over the initial feeling of unworthiness. 
Now, I don't know if those quoted by the Times also said something like, and who I feel most deeply for are the people of Senegal. That's where the prior rejectee was going to serve. And to further emphasize, my point isn't that some of these people absolutely need to be kept away from the Peace Corps, and some of them don't. I'm also not defending the Peace Corps' practices. They seem officious. They don't seem to communicate well. I really don't think they are adhering to the best that medical science has to offer. It's just that a greater awareness and sensitivity to the realities of mental health and the capabilities of those who have mental health issues, it, that, while laudable, It doesn't necessarily follow that if we have better awareness, better sensitivity, better knowledge of capabilities, it doesn't follow that mental health cannot be a legitimate metric within the overall picture, in this specific case especially. Also, I would put forward that U.S. ability law might not be the most ethical way to serve all the people involved. All the medicated Americans laudably dealing with their conditions and hoping to help the world, but also all the citizens of the world who deserve the best that America and the Peace Corps can offer. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Corey Wara, senior producer Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Beachfish Productions. Uh, note to self next time you make up an acronym, make up one it's easy to remember. If you're interested in advertising with us, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. and thanks for listening. Thank you.